the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. We're back today with Tim Thompson, PAC Arthroplasty Manager of Impact Ortho, a division of Arthrex. Tim, you talked about some significant surgical comorbidities, and I'm going to ask the question that I think I know and probably most people know the answer to, but why would a seizure disorder be an issue for a reverse shoulder? Think about seizure disorders and shoulders, whether it's things like stabilization procedures or bone block procedures or, or arthroplasty. Those seizure disorders have disastrous effects on that reverse total shoulder, including dislocation, including implant failure. And we've seen some of these implants that just get destroyed uh, or, or not the implants get destroyed, but the bone that's holding these implants get destroyed with seizure disorders. There is literature out there that demonstrates that there is safety performing reverse total shoulder in these patients, but having their seizure disorders well-controlled prior to surgery mitigates these risks. And again, the, the shared decision-making with the patient and taking all those risks into account, we know that reverse total shoulder arthroplasty in most cases is an elective procedure, even with fractures. So if it's something that we can delay surgery three months or six months to make sure that that seizure disorder is under control and that patient's had this seizure-free interval, we'll do the same surgery in three, six months. And we'll know that those risk factors are going to be a lot less. Right. And there were several other risk factors you had talked about, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, tobacco, osteoporosis. All of these things might play into what type of surgery you might do, i.e. when you're considering how to repair these proximal humerus fractures. Are you just going to pin it and go? Are you going to let it heal and do the best you can with what you got? Uh, are you going to try a reverse? So all of these things kind of play into it. Speaking of just leaving the fracture alone to let the tuberosities heal, we had talked about this, and it's such an important part. Of why is it so important with, say, a reverse shoulder? Why is it important to have the tuberosities intact? You mentioned some of those comorbidities and anything that affects the healing of those tuberosities can have, again, deleterious effects on your surgical intervention. If you've got somebody that's using tobacco or you've got peripheral vascular disease or somebody that just doesn't have the blood flow for those tuberosities to heal, that's going to have a potential bad effect. If you've got a patient with uncontrolled diabetes and an A1C of 10, they're at higher risk for infection. And again, surgical outcomes aren't going to be as good. The better position you can get the tuberosities in with a good articulation will lead to a better functional outcome. Even in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, historically with reverse refractures, people will just take out the tuberosities and just kind of let things fly. But we know those functional outcomes have been proven to be better in the research if you have those tuberosities intact. And again, even if the treatment provided results in AVN, percutaneous pinning or ORF or IM nailing, if those tuberosities end up healing and are in a good position, the functional outcome of reverse is going to be most likely better. Right. I worked with a shoulder doc for a lot of years, and over time, it wasn't uncommon that we would let a three or four part proximal humerus fracture just heal. Just let it heal, and then the goal is moving on to an eventual hemiarthroplasty or a reverse total shoulder at this point. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what are your surgeons that you work with, their preferences for, say, a four-part proximal humerus? Or is it just dependent on the patient and all the risk factors and comorbidities? 
Yeah, Sam, there are so many reasons not to operate immediately in today's world, whether it's comorbidities or COVID or planned travel that you don't want to have an operation right now and you're okay just going in a sling. You don't want to you know, be under anesthesia for long periods of time right before you get on a plane or you plan to just don't want an operation. Patients have to have their say in, in treatment and it's our job to counsel them on all the risks and benefits. You know, there was a study that came out probably five or six years ago called the Proffer study out of the UK that showed two and three part fractures, non-operative treatment did just as well and at a lower cost than, than operative treatment. Now, taking that with a grain of salt, non-operative treatment is always an option. For arthroplasty in general, the operation we do today is most likely the same operation we do in three months or six months with little downside other than maybe a little bit more difficult because of some of the scarring. When we talk arthroplasty, reverse total shoulder is now the treatment of choice in most fractures. Uh, as the outcomes are more predictable than hemiarthroplasty, again, we didn't have reverse total shoulder arthroplasty when I started practice in, in the early 2000s. And that's kind of becoming vogue, not only for proximal humerus fractures, but for arthritis in general, because those outcomes are certainly predictable. But again, it's an end stage procedure. So it's not for everybody right away. Got it. And, you know, speaking of total shoulders, reverse total shoulders, you went over a little bit about using cement for the stem and using that versus press fit. I can imagine the osteoporotic kind of stovepipe humerus. What's the most appropriate way to put cement in the humeral shaft? I know you don't want it too proximal, but I was hoping you might go through that a little bit and also describe, kind of just go over the reverse total shoulder components, the glenosphere, maybe tell our listeners kind of what goes in and, and the thinking on that. So let's start with the, the prosthesis itself first, and then we'll try to talk about what cement preparation is best. You know, reverse, you, you're taking an anatomic procedure, an anatomic uh, native anatomy, and you've completely switched it. Now you're not relying on the rotator cuff muscles and tendons to move the shoulder. You're relying on a deltoid, and there's some, some really specific biomechanics that go into it. But again, you're taking, instead of the ball and the ball and the socket and the socket, you're taking the ball and putting it on the socket and then putting the socket on the humerus. And that allows the, the deltoid to function as the main mover of that shoulder. With fractures, depending on the fracture pattern, if you've got a, an absolutely destroyed proximal humerus, press fit may not be an option. And there's all different kinds of stems with all different types of coatings and other fixtures that can be used for, for stabilization. But for the most majority of fractures that, that we see in the operating room now, a lot of those can be dealt with with press fit stems because they, they do provide good stability. And, you know, cement is the enemy as far as uh, shoulder surgery goes. The less cement we can use, the better, because again, some of these surgeries are, are not the end procedure, even if it's a reverse sometimes they need to come out for one reason or another. So the, the less we can use cement, the better. With that said, sometimes this proximal humerus is so destroyed that, that to get any kind of stability down of the diaphysis, you do need some cement, but you don't need to pressurize cement like we used to when we first started doing shoulder arthroplasties. There is a technique called the black and tan technique that's relatively popular now where you place cement just on the distal tip of the stem it goes into the diapsis, but that cement doesn't come up and get near the tuberosities. We know that cement near the tuberosities can interfere with healing. And again, we're trying to get those tuberosities to heal uh, best we can. And there's different implants that help those, those tuberosities adhere to that, that proximal implant. But again, trying to keep that cement away and just essentially potting the stem with a little bit of cement for fixation if you have the cement. 
seems to be the best option at this point. With me today is Tim Thompson. Tim's been talking about proximal humerus fractures and treatments. Tim, are there any other thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners on this topic? No, Sam, I think we've covered most of it. Just remember, it's a shared decision with your patient, um, making sure you counsel them and all the risks and benefits of everything from that operative treatment to end-stage procedures. And it's really difficult to be cookbook about it because of everything else that that, that patient is, uh, has going on in, the, in their lives, which makes treatment algorithms and trees really difficult to establish. Uh, but at least having a really good idea of how to describe these fractures and knowing what's going to work and not work will, will help lead you down that path. Tim has also started an interesting side business. It's called Pathfinders Healthcare Career Advisors, pathfindershca.com. And his business basically focuses on helping PAs with different career paths and helping PAs to prove their value as a professional in both clinical and non-clinical settings. Tim, tell us about your new business. Sam, this is something that I never thought I'd be getting into. You know, being a, a PA and not having any business background or business training, I was asked to give a talk about a year ago at a national conference about my career path. And the responses I got from the surgeons and the PAs, nurse practitioners, and the athletic trainers in the crowd was, how did you get to where you are today? And I've been fortunate to have some great mentors and had the ability to, to take some risk outside of clinical medicine when opportunities presented themselves. And then I realized that there's a lot of PAs out there, whether they're just starting out in school or whether they're mid-career and maybe they're experiencing a little bit of burnout, particularly after COVID, and don't have a business background and don't understand how the world works. When I first started in medicine, it was you sit across the table from a surgeon and they have a job opening and they're offering you a certain amount of money and you're looking for a job and you're looking to take a certain amount of money and you shake hands and that's how you become employed. Things have changed now with resources and different types of HR management systems. It's not as easy as it once was to, to get your foot in the door for careers that you want, whether it be within clinical medicine or, or an alternative career. And that's why I founded Pathfinders because yeah, as clinical uh, healthcare providers, we need help realizing that medicine is now a business and how do we progress in our careers to get to where we want to go and being able to show that, that we are valuable and not just somebody that helps surgeons or physicians. Tim, I, I've done some consulting work, some side things, and there was an article in the AAPA about different jobs, and there's a newer one, a new version of that recently, but things like what can you do besides clinical practice? Uh, what other avenues? And I listed several. I know that you're doing some of this as a profession already. Uh, some of it, such as research, academics, pharma industry, such as yourself, consulting, which I've done some of, governance, medical writing. I guess, let's start with you. How did you come to be where you are? You, you touched on this early on in our interview on proximal humerus fractures, but can you shed some light on it for people that are listening for the first time? I was working in orthopedic surgery for about seven years, and there was a course that was put on by a medical device company, Arthrex, for PAs. As a physician assistant, there's always a progression of helping and assisting your surgeons and then actually being able to do more and more things under their guidance. And at this course, they actually taught you why you were doing certain things, not just how to do it. And I thought, what a, what a great opportunity. My wife is a PA as well, was, was with me at that course. Uh, and then, you know, several weeks after the course, 
we found out that that company was hiring. And, you know, because priorities in, in life change and my wife and I were waking up in the morning and going in one direction uh, each and then meeting back up at nine o'clock at night. So we wanted to start a family and, and that opportunity uh, or, or that position within that medical education team provided that opportunity. So we packed up and we moved down to Florida and found, uh, you know, my wife went back to clinical medicine, but I found this opportunity with this medical device company to teach. And it's an education job and you're, you're teaching surgeons and PAs and, and other assistants on the safe and effective use of products operating every day uh, in a cadaveric lab. And it, it was a, a great place to be. And then all of a sudden you realize that there's a business behind that. And you start looking at different metrics and looking at analytics and realizing that you can measure a lot of these different things as far as what you're doing and how much value you're providing. And that led to a little bit of research within the education team. And that led to a move over to a product development team where we were developing shoulder arthroplasty products uh, that are now in use, which was great. And you realize that there's also a business side to that with everything else in supply chain and manufacturing. And now we're in a sales management position where we're taking all those things into account uh, working at, at the local level. So it's been a little bit of a crazy path, but again, it's it's choices that I've made and opportunities that have presented themselves that we're able to grow as a professional, not just be stuck in a clinical setting, you know, working for, for a surgeon or a big group. That's a interesting path that you've come down. I think it's one that you've enjoyed, it sounds like, and I'm happy for that. You talked there about proving your value. And I think I have an idea about that, but you talked about it in clinical and non-clinical situations. How do you prove your value? How do you show that you're a professional, that you're worth what you're asking for? Sam, everything today is, is based off metrics and Excel sheets, right? It, you've got to be able to quantify what you're doing. The days of, of subjectively saying, I think I did a good job, or I think I helped my surgeon over the last year when it comes to your annual reviews and people are are trying to tighten their belts on, on raises and benefits and those types of things, you have to be able to show that you provided something out of the ordinary and not just did your job. So when, you know, as we look at resumes come in and we're working with our clients, a lot of the resumes look the same. I first assisted in surgery. I helped my physician in clinic, my surgeon in clinic, and I did casting. Those things are all great. Those are the, the responsibilities that you're supposed to be doing, but what makes you different? We talk about putting numbers to those things. Over the past year, I've seen X many patients, and that's X percentage growth of what we did the year before, or freed up surgeon to do X more cases by having an extra clinic day or an injection clinic or whatever it may be. Being able to put numbers to what you do, whether it's in clinical medicine or in a sales position or whatever it may be, is really important for you to be able to put on your resume to stay. So you have to prove your value. You have to actually show objective proof that you're doing something good for the practice. Tim, I, I know your new career or your new side career, I should say, or side gig. I, I, I have trouble calling anything a gig. Uh, let's just put that out there. But your side gig, what other thoughts on career would you like to share with our listeners? And, and we have a whole gamut of people. We have people that are non-clinical. We have people in academics. We have new grads. We have people like me that have been around forever. Somebody's thinking about changing their career. What would you tell them? 
as I was thinking about this business and, and talking with surgeons and other PAs, and I had a surgeon look me directly in the eye and say, I understand that you have never felt defined or limited by the initials after your name. And what he meant by that, Sam, is that we can do anything. If you get through PA school, you've had a long road of education and studying and commitment. You can do just about anything you want. And there are people and, and companies out there that would like to keep you pigeonholed into how best you fit for them. Not necessarily taking your career, your wants, your needs into account. The path that I took was a lot of self-directed education after clinical medicine. I knew that I didn't have a traditional business training, whether it was through high school, college, graduate school, PA school. So I started taking online courses and I ended up eventually getting my executive MBA because I knew that was a hole in my resume and that was going to lead me to different opportunities. So even if you don't know what you want, there's ways to explore what's out there, whether it be clinical medicine, academia, medical device or pharma industry, medical legal, working for insurance companies. All these things are out there, but you have to have a little bit of a commitment to your own education to help you get your foot in the door. Tim, I want to thank you for coming back on today. Tim's new consultant work, Pathfinders Healthcare Career Advisors. You can find more information at pathfindershca.com. Tim, thank you for being with us today. Sam, thank you again for the opportunity to share some of the, the things that I've learned so people don't make the same mistakes or, or you know, can find their own paths and, and again, don't feel limited by, uh, by those trying to keep them in different positions. Hopefully this helps. Absolutely. Hi, listeners. This is Sam Dyer from the Ortho PAC. I hope to see you in Charlotte this May. We have our annual spring meeting. Charlotte dates are May the 5th and 6th. If you have any questions or questions about the content, please look at paos.org under CME.